Well, if I can pronounce this correctly, down in southern Mexico is a place called Cueva de Villaluz, which to my understanding means Cave of the House of Light, if I have that right. Get my notes out here. Cave of the Lighted House, excuse me. And on your way to this cave, if you ever get the opportunity to go there, you go through some beautiful scenery, if you will, and you you go through the jungle. Anybody been through the jungle of Central or or South America or any place near the equator and it's lush and it's green and all the leaves? Some of them you have plants in your home, but now they're growing wild and their leaves are twice as big. And then you have beautiful birds and exotic creatures and butterflies and flowers that hang down and dangle and, and all kinds of beautiful things. And on the way to this specific cave, it's no exception. So as you go there, you're seeing all of this beauty and life uh, that surrounds it. And then as you go into the cave, from what I'm told, there's all kinds of beautiful rooms and big, beautiful pools. In fact, there's 20 springs that feed into the river of this cave. And it's a gorgeous cave. There's actually fish down in the water. There's life in there as well. The only problem is that if you are accepting of the invitation to go into this cave and you don't have the proper gear or equipment, it will be the last cave in which you enter. And you may say, how come? Why? What's the problem? Well, in this particular cave, there are gases that are emitted and fill the entire cave. And when you breathe those gases, they are poisonous to the human body and you will die. I can't help but think of that verse. There's a way that appears right and good and and pleasing and nice and beautiful unto a man. I'm expounding a little bit. But the end of which is death. We've been going through the story of Joseph. And this is part two of this series. Last time we looked at how God made a promise to Abraham and that through him the entire world would be blessed. And by the time we get to Jacob, we saw very clearly that there was a lot of dysfunction in this family. This family was filled with jealousy and deceit and plots of murder, as we saw last time, lying, covering up, slavery, incest, rape, a passive father. Yet when Joseph was only 17 years old, his life gets turned abruptly upside down. Yet even then we see this young man putting his full faith and trust in God. And in today's peace, We're going to look at another all-too-familiar part of Joseph's story, if you will, the temptation piece. And you know what I'm talking about when I say that. But when we left Joseph last time, he was putting his full trust, giving God full power and authority in his life. And we're calling this series God's Sovereignty Yesterday, Today, and Forever. This idea that God knows what is best and ultimately he will carry through his promises, not just to Abraham, but to his covenant people, his remnant people, through until the end. Despite whatever dysfunctions are in your life or in your family, God's purposes will prevail. God is not ever taken by surprise. He longs to use us along the way, but if we refuse, God's plan will continue on. We saw last week through this sovereignty piece how God sends this random man to give Joseph direction to find his brothers when he's lost. We find through an intervention of his oldest brother to stop this plot of murder. We see seemingly randomly this group of Midianite traders coming through right where they just happen to be. And they say, we know what we'll do. We'll sell our brother off instead of kill him. And in the story of Joseph, we are reminded that we serve a God who is able to bring good out of evil, to bring light out of darkness. 
And so last time we stopped with Joseph on his way in the caravan to Egypt, surrendering his life and his situation totally and completely to God. But granted, things are much different in Egypt. It's not life as usual. It's not the countryside that he is familiar. He's no longer the the favored son who is petted by his father, but now he's a slave with no friends, with nothing to support. I mean, he doesn't need to support himself, I suppose, but he has, he has no future. He has no ambitions. He seemingly has no promise. And he's here in a rather sinful and secular place and society. The culture is different. The people are different. Their values are different. Parents, how do you like the idea of your red-blooded 17-year-old son going into, I don't know, any large city. Take your pick. Son, I trust you. I know you'll do the right thing. I know you'll keep God first and last and best in your life. And don't allow society to rub off. Pick good friends. Mighty hard to do when you're a slave, isn't it? You do what we'll tell you to do, when we tell you to do it, how we want you to do it. Could this young man survive? Could he maintain his faith? Would the continual pressure of the culture ebb away his belief? Is that really true, what I've been raised to believe? Is God really that way? Because as I see over and over and over again, could it be that this was all just a lie? Is there, in fact, one true God? So we pick up the story. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 39. And we're going to read this chapter in its entirety. Genesis chapter 39, beginning in verse 1 of a story we know all too well. Genesis chapter 39, verse 1. Now we read here. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard. Some say he's the chief executioner. Oh, perfect. Just who you want to work for, right? Don't bother giving him any guff. So, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Verse two, the Lord was with Joseph. I don't want to speed past that because I believe that's an extremely important piece and part of this story. In fact, we'll see that idea or something similar to that come up over and over and over again throughout this chapter. The author wants us to know, wants us to be reminded again and again and again, in spite of this secular society, in spite of the fact that he's a slave, in spite of the fact that he has no familiar support, the Lord is with Joseph. I don't know about you, but that can make all the difference for me. The Lord is with Joseph. And he was a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Verse 3, and his master saw. Apparently, Joseph is doing things differently than everybody else around him. Apparently, he's living life differently. He carries out his tasks differently because here his master saw that the Lord was with him. Didn't just see that he was a good guy, but saw that the Lord was with him. And that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. That tells me that some way, somehow, Joseph wasn't just keeping his his ideas about God to himself. But he was looking for ways to share, not to preach, but to just say, I know the God that I serve and, and this is how he would want me to do things. And he goes back to his task. I know that the Lord wouldn't want me to to tell a lie or to do this or to do that. Some way, somehow, he is putting out there that God is first 
and last and best in his life. And so his master sees, and his master becomes convinced. It's not just that he's a good person. It's not just that he had good schooling somewhere. It's not just who knows how many other things. It's the fact that the Lord is blessing this young man. Somehow, Joseph is redirecting whatever praise that was intended for him. He says, no, it's not me. It's the Lord. And verse 4, so Joseph found favor in his sight. He didn't go seeking for it necessarily. He didn't go knocking on any doors. He didn't make any demands. But as he served his God, as he was genuine in his faith, Joseph found favor in his master's sight and served him. Then he, speaking of Potiphar, made him overseer, excuse me, of his house, and all that he had put under his authority. Now that's pretty incredible. So it was from the the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had, that here it is again, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. So imagine this, here God is blessing a secular individual doing secular things, secular tasks, worshiping other gods, but yet he is receiving a blessing from the true God because Joseph is in his house. Who could you be a blessing to in the world that's secular just because you're part of the business? You're an employee. You work for them. And you make it very plain, the God that you serve. Not in a preachy way, but maybe in a quiet way, but a resolute way. And as a result, the business is blessed. The endeavor is blessed. There is greater success, and it's recognized as the hand of God. What a blessing that could be. What a blessing it was for Joseph. And we read on, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now let's back up there just a little bit. Genesis chapter 37 tells us that Joseph was 17. I don't know how long that slavery bit or how long the caravan was. I don't know how soon he was taken in by by Potiphar. That transition may have taken a, a few weeks, a few months, maybe a year. I don't know. But Spirit of Prophecy tells us that then he served Potiphar for 10 years. And so from this period of roughly 17 to 27, we find Joseph being faithful to his God. He's not swayed by the culture. 10 years of bad example, 10 years of lying, cheating, loose sexual practices all around him, 10 years of that, and the desire to gain the favor of the Egyptians does not cause him to conceal his principles or to hide under a bushel the God that he serves. He's not ashamed of the religion of his fathers. But in the midst of all of this, we have a greater challenge. In the midst of success, oftentimes temptation comes lurking. Here's a quote from Patriarchs and Prophets 2.14. Joseph attributed his success to the favor of God, and even his idolatrous master accepted this as the secret of his unparalleled prosperity. I think that's neat. Joseph was seen in marked contrast to the idol worshipers that surrounded him. But then we have this verse, Joseph was handsome and in form and appearance. You know, we only have this description of a few men in Scripture. Joseph is the first. Then we also have Saul and David and Absalom, and that's it. But somehow the the writer here wants us to know Joseph is a pretty handsome young man. He's well built. He's got good muscles. He's got a, a clean look about him. He's got a cute face. And why do we need to know that? Well, we keep reading. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes 
on Joseph. And she said, in maybe a shy, timid voice, what do you think? Seems pretty straightforward to me. She said, Joseph, lie with me. Now here we have Joseph, respected, trusted, powerful, handsome. And it's in the days of his success that temptation comes. Something about success and all of its flattery. And I imagine Joseph knew well what the consequence would be of resistance. On the one hand, we have concealment and favor and rewards. On the other, there could be disgrace and imprisonment, perhaps even death. What is Joseph going to do? Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a little book. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not. It's entitled Temptation. And in that little book, he describes temptation in these words. In our members, there is slumbering inclination towards desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. Or finally, that strange desire for the beauty of the world, of nature. Joy in God is in course of being extinguished in us as we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness. Of God. Have you ever noticed when temptation comes, it's not necessarily hatred towards God, it's just forgetfulness. Not right now. Not a good time. There's some other focus here that I'm looking at. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. It is here that everything within me rises up against the word of of God. By the way, our only hope when it comes to temptation is the Word of God, the power of God's Word, the power of what He has told us versus what our mind and our body is telling us. Well, it just feels good. It feels right. It feels like something. Everybody else around me, all these reasons, all these excuses, God's Word is the anchor point. Author Andrew Niederman describes the devil in this way. In fact, he puts these words in the devil's mouth. You tell me if you think they might be be plausible. You sharpen the human appetite to the point where it can split atoms with its desire. You build egos the size of cathedrals, fiber optically connecting the world to every eager impulse. Grease even the dullest dreams with these dollar green gold-plated fantasies until every human becomes an inspiring emperor becomes his own God. Yes, temptation can be overwhelming at times. Perhaps some of the temptations are some of these. These are the things that sometimes we think about, but it's certainly not limited to any of these. It can be all kinds of things, much more subtle, can it? But ultimately, any temptation in your life looks not at the long term, but it looks at the short term. Isn't that true? A quick fix, an instant gratification, an easy way out. It felt right at the time. Temptation doesn't look at how this will impact the future, how this will impact my wife or my family, or we could say how this will impact your 
future wife or future family. Temptation doesn't care about long-term health or my future job performance. It's only concerned with now, this moment, gratifying the sinful flesh at the expense of all else. And besides, the devil is so good at putting things in our mind constantly that say, what's the big deal? Everybody else does it. In fact, everybody else does far worse than this. Certainly, this can't be a problem. Temptation is an opportunist, and it seeks our most vulnerable moments. Have you noticed that? But when it comes, it comes in full force. And it sounds a lot like this voice of the master's wife, lie with me. It's direct. It's to the point. It's calculated. Yet we must realize, whatever the temptation, it could be pride, it could be a closet alcoholic, smoking, overindulgence, judgmental, physical or verbal abuse, lust, adultery, theft, gambling. I mean, the list goes on and on. The Bible's full of things that tells us to stay away from, from our own good. But any of those things can come to tempt us. And the devil knows exactly which buttons to push. But we need to realize, right up here at the front, that temptation itself is not sin. Did you hear that? Temptation is not sin. Now, if I continue to just resonate on, or is that the word, marinate in it or whatever it is. I just keep thinking about it, thinking about it. At some point that may transfer over into sin as I allow myself to just indulge a little bit with this idea or this fantasy or whatever. But temptation itself is not sin. Let's prove that from scripture. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points, what? Tempted as we are, yet without sin. Could it be any plainer than that? And so when the devil comes knocking on your heart's door, your mind's door, and says, what about this? What about that? Wouldn't this be fun? Wouldn't this be enjoyable? And then, as if you're, you know, you're trying to say, no, I don't want to do that. And then he says, oh, you've already thought about it this long. You might as well go ahead. And you say, get thee behind me, Satan. We have a Jesus, a divine example, who was tempted in all points but did not sin. And somebody here is probably tempted to think, how does Jesus know what it's like to have withdrawals coming off of heroin. When Jesus fasted in the wilderness for 40 days, his physical desire for food was greater than any desire of any cocaine addict. The body does not necessarily know the difference of the strong desire for food magnified by Satan than a cocaine addict. It's just my body needs this. I have to have it. I will die if I don't have some nourishment. Does Jesus know what it's like to be a woman left by her husband with four kids and no income? I think he has an idea because Judas betrayed him. The other disciples ran from him. The church rejected him. Think about this for a moment. The greater your capacity to love, the greater your capacity to be hurt. And so because Jesus has an infinite capacity to love, he has the greatest and infinite capacity to be hurt. Does that make sense? And so we like to sit down and lick our wounds and say, woe is me. He doesn't know. He can't relate. Excuse you. Excuse me. In full honesty, we can't relate to the pain and the heartache that God feels. Another verse here, Hebrews 2.18. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. That's what he's there for. Sometimes we get the idea when we read these stories, I need greater willpower. I need to grip my teeth harder. I need to just do better. And then as I do better, I'll come to the Lord and I'll say, Lord, I've got it figured out. 
And some of you have been at that long enough to know that doesn't work. It's never going to work because God is the one that will aid you to allow you to empower you to overcome sin in your life. And without it, you can do nothing. That's why you want to put as much word on the hard drive as possible. Read his word, bask in his word, memorize his word. I found something else that I think is, has been helpful for me. I don't know if it'll be helpful for you. You mean the pastor's tempted? Yes. I get this little app on my phone. It's a uh, scripture typer. It's the same one. Pastor Hyman uses it to memorize. And uh, I'm trying to memorize a few things there. But the other thing I like about it is I can group verses. Excuse me, they're my favorite verses. And I can put them in a, a grouping of whatever I want to call that grouping. And so whatever I'm tempted with, I can put a title there, whether it's discouragement, whether it's pride, whether it's you know, a whole host of other things. I can put a little grouping of texts together. And when I start to feel overcome with temptation, when the pity party starts to, you know, the devil's blowing up balloons and he's ready to have this pity party, I can feel it coming on. I can pull that out. And the other thing I like about it, Pastor Brian knows this, you can record your voice. I know you don't like the sound of your voice. Nobody likes the sound of your voice, but too bad. That's what the rest of us hear all the time. (laughs) Mine sounds like this when it's recorded. But anyway, you can record your own voice of that verse, which is power, which is God aiding you to overcome in temptation. And it'll cycle through the the verse. And then you can have the the text at the end. You can have it say that verse three times before it goes the next one, five times, whatever you want to do, or just one time. And then it'll go all the way to the end of your section of verses. And it'll go back again. And so if you're feeling like, like you're going to be overwhelmed with something and you're in the car, you're someplace that you can't just, you know, you have to cook the meal for the kids or whatever it is, you can put in earbuds, you can just put it on the shelf and you can just listen to scripture over and over and over. Those verses that empower you to overcome and not have that pity party. Does that make sense? And so you can then pull that thing out. I mean, who doesn't have their phone with them all the time? That's another problem. But you pull out your phone anytime and you start to listen to scripture, listen to scripture, listen to scripture. Friends, it works. God's word is powerful. The problem is sometimes when we get in those situations, we're forgetful of God. We're forgetful of the app. We're forgetful of scripture. We don't want to hear any of those things. And we just want to keep thinking, well, what would that be like? And there's another aspect of this that we could do. And we see Joseph do it here a little bit later. And we'll look at that. James 4, 7, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Don't just quote resist the devil. We talked about this several months ago. Resisting is good, but if you don't submit to God first, your resisting is going to wear you out and you will fall. Submit to God. Claim his power, his strength, and the devil will flee from you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you. Well, I have an exception. You don't know what it's like for me. I have this history. There's this long habit. It's been in the family for years. Are you calling this verse a liar? No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful. It doesn't say you're faithful. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able when you submit to God. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Put that verse in one of your, your lineups to be reminded of as you're chopping cucumbers. Maybe you'll start chopping a little softer after you hear those verses a few times. Sometimes we do all kinds of mental gymnastics to try to make what God has called not okay, okay. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I don't want to have any liars here this morning. Sometimes we couch it in various ways that 
Anyway, let me read you this. It's a letter. Dear Pastor, I've been married 10 years. I have three children. My wife is a good woman and mother. We're both Seventh-day Adventists. We both hold church offices, and I preach once a quarter. We have regular family worship. Our family's okay. However, I do not feel the way I once did. I'm not passionate or feel attracted to my wife. I own a small business that takes a lot of time and effort to keep going. A few years ago, I ran an ad for a part-time secretary. A woman applied for the job and was hired. She's from another country and is married as well. Her father pressed this marriage upon her, but there's no love in that marriage. Her marriage has been under a lot of stress, and at times, she herself has been suicidal. She's been a big help in the business and is my number one fan. She encourages me when I'm about to give up. She encourages me to do my best. We confide in each other things she cannot tell her husband, and I talk to her about things my wife would not understand. She has some Bible questions, and so we've studied the Bible together and pray together often. As our relationship has grown, we have asked God to be in the center of our relationship and lead us in all that we do together. We pray together every day about the business and each other's families. We pray about everything. Pastor, we love each other, but we want to do what is right in the sight of God. We want to honor Him through our relationship and want Him to use us in ministry. I give her the things she's missing from home. But our relationship is not about infatuation or sex, but a deep caring for one another. I've wept over this, trying to convince Jesus that this is not adultery. Neither of us want to break our family's hub. I don't want to do anything that would cost either of us our salvation. How can this be wrong when we're praying for God's guidance? I'm so confused. Does that make anybody else just cringe? Because not only is it sin, but it's been further complicated, hasn't it? Because God has been brought into the sin, or at least seemingly. Lord, we want to do your will. We deeply care about each other, and so on and so forth. And these blinders come on. But I don't know if you notice, this individual is so confused, they don't have peace, do they? And so in the response, you tell them, well, I'm going to be telling you things that you probably don't want to hear, but I think that you know are true. And you explain some of the deception that they are experiencing and some of the steps they need to take. And how if they really truly want to get back right with God, what they need to do. And you don't mince words, you say plainly. And with this individual, the blinders came off. For the first time I see clearly what I've done. How wrong this is. How wrong this is to my family and to my wife. And and she came home and I apologized to her and I wept to her and asked for forgiveness from her. And from the Lord and all. And I've slept better now than I've slept in years. But there is this possibility of mental gymnastics with this element of spirituality that makes us somehow think this isn't adultery, this isn't sin, this isn't a problem. When God's word is so plain and straightforward, a simple reading of it. Christ Object Lessons 157. In the whole satanic force, there is not power to overcome one soul who in simple trust casts himself on Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Isaiah 40, verse 29, he gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. He gives you power to say the right thing, to do the right thing. Ephesians 6, 10, 11, thank you, Jennifer, for reading this for us. Finally, my brethren, be strong in what? The Lord, and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. 
And there's all kinds of them, believe me. And without the armor, think of this battle scene, this great controversy, and whose size is, is the devil targeting more than anything but God's remnant people and his remnant church. If I can get them off course, because they expose me more completely and more fully than anybody else. And so he is targeting you. He is targeting me. There are wiles of the devil that are running rampant. And without the armor and the protection of God found in his word, without his power, we're lost. Those flaming arrows will stick. So back to Joseph. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph and she said, lie with me. Pretty bold. But he counters with equal boldness. He refused. Pretty simple. He refused. He didn't say, let me think about that. Let me go pray about that. I don't think that's a good idea. See how that leaves the door open just a little bit? No, he refused. Absolutely not. And said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what it is with me in the house. And he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. Loyalty to his master. But then he says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? More importantly, loyalty to God. Excuse me, ma'am. I know that you may not like what I have to tell you, but absolutely not. This is not going to work. For one, I will not do that to my master. And for two, and most importantly for me, there's no way I'm going to do this thing and sin against my God. What does it say, David, when he writes Psalms 51, verse 4? Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. It's incredible to me. Now, accountability is powerful, and that's another way that we can overcome temptation, right? To have an accountability partner, somebody that'll ask us the tough questions or be able to see which websites we go to or whatever thing that we need help with. But it's incredible to stop and think about what we will not do or what we will do, I should say, when we feel like we're alone and we're isolated, when nobody can see, humanly speaking, but God can see. In fact, we are living before men and angels, the Bible tells us. The whole universe is watching, but we just like to crowd that out and say, oh, never mind. It doesn't really bother me, the fact that my whole life is on display to the universe. But if a man, if another human is watching, well then, no, of course not. I'm not going to do that. That's a warped, sinful way of thinking that somehow if people are watching, it's never going to happen. But if it's only God watching, no big deal. How could I do this wicked thing, Joseph says, and sin against God who's watching? He's the ultimate witness. He's the one I have to be accountable to. He's the one that decides the judgment. How could I do this wicked thing? Is he looking long-term or short-term? Long-term. It may have been nice in the moment, but it wouldn't have been nice in the long-term. But we find that she doesn't take no for an answer, verse 10. So it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day. It's like this dripping, drip, 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 that he did not heed her to lie with her or even be with her. She's a problem. I'm going to avoid her at all costs. But she's no dummy. She sets up a trap, a setup. Verse 11, but it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work. And huh, none of the men of the house was inside. And that she caught him by the garment. 
fact, that word caught in Hebrew implies some violence, if you will. She caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. Honey, sit down for a second. I just want to give you a Bible study. There's a few verses here. I want to pull out my little app and we're going to let... No, he runs. And so it was, verse 13, when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, that she called to the men of the house and spoke to them saying, she's probably screaming at this point, see, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. That word for Hebrew is, is really a slang, if you will, a racial slang that she's starting to use or is going to use. I'm sorry, that's down, verse 16. But he says, this Hebrew you brought among us, he came to me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So I imagined her in anger and grit teeth. She kept his garment with her until his master came home. Look, I have the evidence, it's right here. That little good old boy that you like so much that you can think does no wrong and think that's the reason why we're so wealthy and on and on and on. Look at this. And she spoke to him with words like this saying, the Hebrew servant, there's the racial slang if you look at the original, the Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came in to me to mock me. So it happened as I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. This is the trap. This is the setup. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. And then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the prison. Now we all know from reading this story that if he truly believed his wife, there would be no more Joseph. Game over. But perhaps he knew of some of her bad habits as well. And perhaps some of his anger is the fact that to avoid embarrassment of her and, and the whole situation, he has to do something. And so he puts Joseph in prison. But here Joseph did right. He was set up. It was a trap. He honored the Lord his God. He did the right thing. And now he's suffering for it. And he's back in the dungeon. God, where are you? Maybe you did the right thing at work. You didn't choose to be part of the lie or the cover-up. And so everybody else sees you as somebody they can't trust, and so they turn on you. Now you've become the scapegoat. Perhaps you did all the work and somebody else is claiming the credit. Perhaps you stood up to your employer in, regarding the Sabbath and you lost your job and you're not sure how to make ends meet. You did the right thing. Perhaps you stood for principle in the relationship and he left. Perhaps you spent the last 10 years honoring your aging parents and they left you most, of, or they left most of the inheritance with some aloof sibling in another state. I don't know what may have happened to you, but you stood for the right and now you feel like you're suffering for it. And you say, God, where are you? Why is this happening to me? Same song, second verse. I was a slave and you blessed me all the way up and then this... And I'm back here. Where are you, God? The next verse makes sure that we know. But the Lord was with Joseph. Have we heard that before? Just like the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. 
Verse 23, the keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because, here it is again, the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Where is God? He's right there in the dungeon. He's right in the midst of your fire. He's right in your crisis. I can't help but think of that verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink, whether you're in a prison or a dungeon or whatever it is, do all to the glory of God. I think many of us would say, wow, Lord, I had a really influential job. I was doing some really cool things, but then you just abandoned me. I'm here in this prison, so good luck. But Joseph doesn't do that. He doesn't lick his wounds and feel sorry for himself and throw a pity party and say, woe's me. He doesn't give up. He trusts in the sovereignty of God that while he may not understand this most recent turn of events, he says, Lord, I'm going to be faithful to you in this prison. Do you know many prisons where a prisoner is in charge of everything that takes place in the prison? Does that happen? I don't know of another example, but it happens here for Joseph because wherever he is, he's going to live for God and trust in the sovereignty of God and speak of God and witness for God and be a blessing for God. Patriarchs and Prophets 2.18 says, but Joseph's real character shines out even in the darkness of the dungeon. He did not brood upon his own wrongs, but forgot his sorrow in trying to listen to the sorrows of others. You're feeling down and out? Why don't you go minister to somebody else for a change? He found a work to do, even in the prison. Continuing on, God was preparing him in the school of affliction. Anybody here that feel like they're in the school of affliction? Yeah, God was preparing him in the school of affliction for greater usefulness. And he did not refuse the needful discipline. He said, okay, if this is what I need, if these are the lessons I need to learn, if this is how you're gonna grow my faith, if this is how I can be of better service to you, so be it. He's trusting the sovereignty of God. He held fast his faith and patience. His years of faithful service had been most cruelly repaid, yet this did not render him morose or distrustful. He had the peace that comes from conscious innocence. Notice that. He had the peace. What was it? That came from conscious innocence. I didn't do anything wrong. I can put my head on my pillow even though I'm in the dungeon, even though I'm in prison. And no, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't dishonor God. I upheld his standard and I can sleep in peace. Peace that comes from conscious innocence. And he trusted his case with God. Beautiful. I don't know about you, but there are times that life gets a little overwhelming. And you say, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know how these pieces are going to come together. Financially, I'm not sure how this thing is going to come together like it needs to. I don't know how these bills are going to get paid. I don't know how this job is going to be found. I don't know how this family relationship is going to be solved. I don't know. And I'm overwhelmed that all these things keep crashing in more and more and more. And in those moments, I don't know about you, but for me, I have to just drop to my knees and say, Lord, I can't do this. I'm overwhelmed, but I'm trusting in your sovereignty, in your plan, in your mercy, in your grace. And for me, I stay on my knees until I feel a peace, a sense of calm that tells me I've given it to him once again. 
Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Somehow that makes me feel better that God has a purpose and his purpose will prevail. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans not to harm you, but to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. God has a plan. Allow him to work out his plan in your life. God's sovereignty is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There will be bumps in the road. There will be trials and temptations. There will be hard obstacles. But as we see over and over in this chapter, Joseph prospered because the Lord was with him. That's the key. The Lord was with him. As a slave or in a dungeon, it's the Lord that will see you through. We're going to sing our closing hymn now that talks about through the blood of Christ, we can overcome the burden of sin. Through the blood of Christ, we can be free from our passions and our pride. Through the blood of Christ, we can be empowered to do service for Jesus, our King. Yes, there is hope for you and me today. There is power, power, wonder-working power. And where is it? In the blood of the Lamb. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this hymn that reminds us of the power that's available to us to overcome temptation. Lord, we pray that those many verses about Joseph will be said of us as well, that the Lord is with us and that we will trust your plan regardless of what happens to us. Is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.